0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of Modern Day Rebels, the podcast that tells the stories of pioneers who create the lives they want to live. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, hello, my name is Julia Frank and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm fascinated by the question of how we can live both better and more meaningful lives. I'm excited to explore this topic with you each week by sitting down with a modern-day rebel from a range of different personal backgrounds and industries to chat about why they decided to live life differently, how they managed to do so in the first place, and what they do now to sustain, maintain, and continuously transform their everyday lives. In today's episode, I sit down with the amazing Aidan Carroll, founder of the coloring in department and digital education wizard. As you'll learn, Aiden was practically born a rebel. We talk about how his belt choice one day changed his career trajectory, and how his take on being a rebel led him to lead the social media campaign for Team GB during the 2012 Olympics. We also talk about how he accidentally got a job at Google, and how he believes being honest with himself and other people has allowed him to build a successful career and lifestyle. So let's get started. All right, so to get started, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and what you do?
1: I think the a bit about myself question is always very, very hard. I found that when I describe myself to people, they go, that's not you, which, of course, you know, instills lots of confidence in one's own uh, one liners, in one's own elevator pitch. People go, no, that's not you. What are you talking about? That doesn't make sense. But I think if I'm being totally honest with myself, I'm probably more digital education than I am absolutely anything else. I'm at this particular stage. And that's not to say that I don't do other things, but that's where my heart's at. And I would say that a lot of the, I guess, the activities that I work on, a lot of the projects that I get involved in, in some ways are involved around communicating ideas more effectively to people. So for my part, I'm the founder of the coloring in department, and I built large numbers of education products for a number of Fortune 100 and FTSE 100 companies, including all big four uh, tech companies at one point or another. So it's something that's quite close to my heart. And whilst I started out weirdly as a data protection lawyer, and then as a PR person, uh, I've kind of gradually become a digital education maverick of some sort.
0: And kind of breaking that down, how did you end up in digital education through that whole process?
1: Truth be told, (laughs) no offense to any lawyers who listen to this. I started in law and it was a very interesting little trigger. Julian's a strange one. I went to do my pupillage For the bar, so to become a barrister or litigator uh, in U.S. terms, and I was wearing quite an interesting belt that day, and my sponsor said to me, "That's really not a court appropriate belt," and I thought to myself, "You know what? This is just not for me," and that was. (laughs) Oh, I know you laugh, but it's actually a real story. It's mad, but that was the thing that sort of said to me, "Look, actually, potentially, I might be too unconventional uh, for this." And those of you who are listening who are familiar with Ali McBeal. I watched a little bit too much Alan McBeal in the 90s, and I thought, I'm going to be a lawyer, it'll be great. And as it turns out, it is quite a lot of library, quite a lot of research, quite a lot of, I guess, towing the line, keeping up with the Joneses. And it seemed on that particular day, with the belt that broke the camel's back, that it just wasn't for me. So from there, I kind of went on a little adventure, sort of seeking something that would be a bit more interesting, or I guess a better word would be a bit more dynamic than I perceived law to be, at least at that particular stage. And I started just doing random bits of press work. And through uh, a network connection, I ended up working for Hillary Clinton for a little while when she was senator for New York. And that was my first sort of dipping my toe into the media pond, doing my first basic media relations pieces, speaking to my first journalists, and cutting my teeth, to use the phrase, uh, perhaps inappropriately. And from there, I thought, oh, this is quite interesting, but this is quite easy. So I thought, well, if... You know, PR is relatively straightforward. Maybe I should start doing more things. And then I started doing, oh, social media. And I started doing band promos on MySpace early days. MySpace, trying to create revenue from a platform that didn't really have any revenue. And from there, really, things have just gotten sort of somewhat out of control, whilst appearing to be relatively controlled in that, you know, I've added on Google channels, I've added on Facebook channels and so on. And from there, it kind of got to a point where, look, in a way, full circle, And um, the thing I liked about being a lawyer, potentially, was that I got to be in court and I got to make convincing arguments about one thing or another thing, depending, of course, on the case in question. And the thing I loved most about digital was talking about it. And truth be told, from there, I kind of went full circle and went, you know what I should do? I should probably just start talking about digital, shouldn't I? And I end up now, of course, as you know, talking an awful lot about digital, really with most of my time. Um, whether that's marketing, advertising, or indeed beyond.
0: I was going to say you kind of started in social media and media in general during the times of MySpace when the typical channels that we now have didn't really exist back then. But before we kind of dive into that, you mentioned you realized you were a little bit unconventional. Given that this podcast is modern day rebels, why would you consider yourself a rebel or why do you think someone else might?
1: I mean, I've never been, actually, I was about to say I've never been described as a rebel, but actually that's also a total untruth. I'm frequently described as a rebel or a maverick or rogue, rogue. I get the word rogue an awful lot as well. Aiden will go rogue. And that does tend to happen to a fair degree, but that's mostly because of the way I think about things. I think that I've always been relatively non-linear in my approach to problems. And as a result, it can be quite difficult to follow. I think that when I'm given a project, and this has been the case since I was quite young, um, most people will be able to understand the outcome or the output of the project, but they'll have no idea how I got there because it's just, as I say, this sort of non-linear approach to thinking. So whilst I wouldn't, strictly speaking, describe myself as a rebel or as a maverick or as rogue in any way, I am definitely someone who would have different or aberrant thinking versus what is the expected norm.
0: Was there kind of besides the belt? Was there kind of a point where you realized, oh, maybe, maybe this is not how other people think, or maybe I'm slightly different.
1: Well, I mean, I suppose it's it's the nature of kind of the way we were all wired up. You know, it all goes back to childhood a little bit. And my grandfather used to teach me poetry, and that was pretty much all he did. In truth, just taught me poetry and then ignored me, but it was quite a helpful thing. So I know quite a lot of poetry, particularly poetry in Gaelic. So that's a traditional Irish language for those of you who are unaware. And I used to be made to solve all these kind of very lateral thinking riddles and limericks and problems. And I think in a, in a way uh, that um, coupled with the way I think quite naturally has made me a very lateral problem solver in that I tend to think about things that are entirely um, unthought of or we're not never an option in the first place if someone presents me with option a option b option C I will go F and a combination of B and C to suit the need depending so I mean that, that's the truth of the matter uh, really and it was the same since I was a small child and I guess it's kind of born fruit in that our current business climate is extremely dynamic and my natural wiring is to actually fit that mold so if anything I'm less a rogue today, than I was five years ago, because the climate that we're all existing in is significantly more movable um, than it was then.
0: And kind of following up from that in terms of that lateral thinking and that ability, how has that kind of played out in your career, so to speak? Because you mentioned you kind of started off in media and kind of did bits and bobs there, but kind of getting to the point that you are now, you've you've had something to do with the Olympics. So I'm not sure if you kind of want to dive into into that, which I thought was a really interesting approach of of running a media campaign.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll tell you the full story, because why not? I'm, I'm conscious that it's, A, the first episode of your what will be an amazing podcast saga, and equally a true story. So I was um, quite young, and I was looking for some clients, I needed a high profile case study, I picked that up from my PR days, New journalists always want something really juicy to sink their teeth into, or at least to to use that creates the perception they've done their due diligence or their research. This is, of course, at the point when a lot of journalists are losing their jobs and or becoming PRs. So I thought to myself, I need a case study client. And at this particular time, Olympic fever had gripped London, where I'm based. So this would have been around, I guess, 2011 at this particular stage. And uh, what I did in essence was I uh, needed to get close to the director of communications for the British Olympic Association. And the best way to do that was to masquerade as something that I was not. So essentially, I masqueraded as a member of support staff, and I'll tell you uh, what sort of support staff, but in essence, that allowed me to sell uh, services to him uh, for a social media and digital role, uh, particularly for Team GB. So that's the London Olympics, um, the team, not the organizing committee, over the course of 2012, which did in fact work out quite well. I did get my case study, and there are many myriad insane stories uh, from that particular period in time that... I guess further evidence doing things somewhat unconventionally in potentially what should have been a very conventional environment.
0: Because you essentially ran the 2012 Olympics for Team GB.
1: Yes, that's right. The the social media end of things, and that kind of meant being it meant playing good cop bad cop an awful lot because we are given extremely robust guidelines, as I'm sure you know, with athletes in general. You know, please don't, for instance, drink alcohol in your uh, uniform the various different associations, because, of course, you're a public figure and you are, in this case, representing a country and, you know, children and harm in advertising, all these different types of things come into play. So we were given very, 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 very strict guidelines with that in mind. And in essence, instead of tracking the brand all the time, we had to track each of the individual athletes and their individual social media footprint and their individual engagements and interactions across the social space, At that point, it was predominantly Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus, believe it or not, to make sure that they were behaving themselves. Most of the time, they weren't behaving themselves. So you kind of had to bad cop them a little bit. Quite a few very famous athletes have had words with me, or at least I've had words with them. And it was very interesting kind of telling off someone who was on TV that day, who has just won like three gold medals, I think, in total at that stage, Please don't drink whiskey on a rooftop in your Team GB uniform. And there were quite a few of those conversations, as well as, you know, nationals of other countries taking offense at referees' rulings and starting to harass the Olympic team here in the UK, as well as a few other crises. We had a couple of death threats that we had to mop up to. Well kind of we were all scrambling, um, because at that stage you had to really be on social media 24-7. The tooling was really very much in its infancy. And I mean, really in its infancy. And there had to be this perception that you were always on, particularly because it was a worldwide event. And in doing so, kind of, we were sleeping in shifts, which kind of created its own complexities, I guess, when managing something that is running real time.
0: So kind of walk me through that. You're you're quite young at this stage. All of a sudden, you've won this pitch that typically kind of bigger agencies or potentially more established agencies would have won. And you've got a team of individuals now sleeping in shifts. Did you ever feel like you were out of your depths or kind of what was the mindset there?
1: <laughs> I guess there's two ways to answer this question. One is no, I wasn't out of my depth, or at least I didn't feel like I was out of my depth. And the second way to answer that question is yes, very much out of my depth. So in truth, I think at the time I was so pigheaded and so full of self-belief what with the, the foibles of youth that I didn't quite realize what I had got myself into. Um, And in a way that was probably a gift because if I had really had known at that particular stage that the scale of the challenge that I would have to overcome in the months that sort of proceeded from that, then I probably wouldn't have done it. That said, I think probably at the time I benefited greatly from that particular piece. And I think I learned more about running a business in those three months than I probably have learned since because it was a real baptism of fire.
0: Yeah, you kind of went went straight into into the deep end. And it kind of because it was such a specific period of time, the Olympics kind of end at some point. How how did you kind of move from that and keep establishing what you were interested in?
1: Um, Truth be told, it didn't go that well after the Olympics. So we uh, had to kind of pivot to a degree, uh, because you can't. Well, you can purely do sports events based marketing, but it's not what we would call the most robust business model in the whole world, because, of course, the client base is much smaller than it otherwise might be. So we were doing a lot more um, in the higher education space. So we, I was, I spent quite a bit of time recruiting Chinese students for universities in London for MBA programs and uh, you know, running ads in Korean and South Korean, early Facebook advertising to do precisely the same. And... Really, the budgets became a bit shaky in that particular department And with higher education in mind. Less people essentially were going to university and therefore there was less money or there was uh, a greater desire to in-house a lot of marketing services, at which point, of course, we started to struggle a little bit more financially and the star shine started to, I guess, wear off. Um, that particular enterprise at that stage.
0: When you started to realize that, how did you pivot or kind of move from there?
1: Well, this was the trick. And I guess this is where, um, I guess the rest of my life begins to a degree. The clients that we had still very much needed the services. As you know, there is um, an unbelievable appetite for MBAs, for instance, in particular, uh, that seems to really never go away. And the issue wasn't that the client's university in this particular case, the, the college in this case, They still needed those students. They still needed those leads. They still needed prospectuses downloaded. They still needed events to be attended. They still needed all of the handholding. They still needed all of the processes. They still needed all of the engagement, but they just couldn't afford it anymore. And what I thought to myself was, well, this is a lack of money, not a lack of need. What can I do? And it was a bit of a bolt out of the blue in truth. I thought, well, you know, I like speaking about things. Maybe we can start building some education products. And I started to build my, my, I guess, were my early courses at that stage. Um, First one was around social media management, particularly. And it was about 25 hours long and I still actually have a copy of it. It's, it's real hilarious reading now in retrospect. And we essentially sold all of these courses to the client teams in order to keep the doors open on our then kind of burgeoning agency in order to get the rest of the staff who had been so loyal to us over the course of the Olympics jobs and really just to kind of buy some more road, I guess, uh, for them. So I was quite transparent with everyone, you know, being as young as you are. I kind of said, look, everyone, things are not going well. This is what we're going to have to do. And at that point, of course, there was a, a window of opportunity to get everyone into new roles. And the only one who didn't get a new role was me.
0: So it was kind of quite early on in terms of online education, right? Because when we think of further education and online education, it seems like a lot, there's a lot of courses out there now, but this is quite early on. How did you kind of establish that that is the way in which you wanted, or digital courses in which you wanted to start investing in and building these to kind of demonstrate that client need?
1: Well, um, I mean, it, it was it was very early. I think even if you think about the big course platforms of the day who shall not be getting advertised for free on the wonderful <laughs> podcast. They have maybe, you know, 95,000 courses or so now. At the time, they had about 950. So it was was much easier to stand out. And whilst the courses were much, 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 much lower quality then um, than they are now, um, we didn't really find it particularly hard. I think actually to this day, I get the odd little check uh, from PayPal every so often for a course that I I think went live about maybe, we're talking maybe eight to nine years ago at this particular stage. And it's, it's quite nice, you know, I'll go and buy myself a bottle of wine. Thank you. Past me. But it kind of spoke to something that I found quite natural. When I started building the course, I realized, of course, a lot of the mechanics that go into it are extremely heavy lifting. Things like audio, things like video, were not as sophisticated as they are now. Or we're not as accessible as they are now. Um, so, of course, you know, podcasts like the one that we're currently on, you know, were not really possible uh, unless you had um, a full setup. And I thought, well, actually, there's a real accessibility issue here. If everyone is saying that the world is changing all the time, there was a lot of conversations happening in the advertising industry on the whole. This was around the stage where everyone realized that media agencies were taking significant cuts of media spend. And I think that was the year, really, that a lot of agency directors stopped driving Ferraris because a lot of the time there was this kind of ask for transparency. And I thought to myself, well, an aid of transparency, an aid of accessibility, um, an aid of communication, wouldn't it be better if everyone just knew a little bit more? And that, I guess, has sort of set me on the journey that I'm on to this day, uh, if I'm being totally truthful. But it wasn't something that was, strictly speaking, planned. The The desire was there, the, you know, the theme was there, but I didn't sit down and go, hey, I'm going to go into online education. That's going to be my thing. I just wanted to fix what I perceived to be broken or perceived to be absent from was then the marketing and advertising industry.
0: And I think that whole trend around transparency is an interesting one to pick up because now more than ever, I feel like companies are really demanded to be more transparent. But I feel like just by the nature of how you are, you are very transparent, very truthful, very direct. And I would kind of like to dive into how that has helped you throughout your career.
1: I mean... I think that it's not always helped me. Now, I would say that what you say is true. Uh, I'd say that I'm extremely direct and extremely transparent because I don't really see the point in secrecy. I don't think that strong partnerships are built on an element of, of being opaque. And I think once upon a time, quite a lot of our big media agencies, which is interestingly now happening to them, but from a platform perspective, our big media agencies were very untransparent with clients. And a lot of where the money was going, uh, what the money was doing, wasn't necessarily represented in the reports. People were just getting a bill. These days, the platforms, to some extent, are doing the same thing to the media agencies. And boy, they really don't like being treated the same way, um, because of course we 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 know there are ongoing kind of disputes around, you know, what is and what is not a click, what is and what is not a view, across uh, big media, across big tech from Google and Facebook and beyond. And there's that kind of ongoing debate. And if I boil it down to that simple concept, look, this is this lack of transparency has actually caused a breakdown in relationships across the industry that further encouraged me, I think, and encourages me to this day to be as transparent as possible. And when I fortunately or unfortunately for some people, you know, the idea is that, you know, when you meet someone very senior in a business, you're supposed to sort of you're supposed to tiptoe around them to a degree you're supposed to coach them. That's what a good business relationship manager does. That's what a good account manager does. Unfortunately, I do not do that. I usually will tell them where they're going wrong um, in 10 or 20 different ways. You know, I I mean, I'm not mean about it, um, as it were, but I will treat a chief exec exactly the same way as I will treat an intern. I have information potentially that is helpful to you, and here is that information. Now, uh, people can use it. People can adapt uh, their approach as a result of it, or they can ignore me. And that's also true in my kind of approach to education. I I will tell you what you need to do. I'll give you the best practice. I'll tell you what that looks like, and you can do it or not do it. So in some ways, people go like, "Well, it's really much about student outcomes, and it's really much about what they do next." And like, yes, it is, but that's their problem. And truthfully, it is. If you, you know, if you do to the best of your ability, you arm people with the information or the experience or the wisdom of having had some. Then it's it's down to people to do it, Uh, and as to whether they're transparent in return. Uh, always remains to be seen, because at times, of course, there are reasons that they wouldn't be things like proprietary business issues.
0: So, kind of taking us back, you found this trend, and you you mentioned you didn't kind of sit down and were like, "Oh, I'm really going to go into digital education." But what was kind of the point where you're like, "Ah, aha, uh-huh, I've got something here, and this is something I want to continue building on." Was there ever a point?
1: I think I sort of surprised myself. I think the point was when I started building my first Google education product, which was the Squared program. And
0: Do you want to kind of tell us how you got there? Because you said you're the only one who didn't get a new job, but you kind of then did.
1: I kind of then did, yes. So I had, um, <laughs> I had built a few online education products and I had made a big scene of it, of course, as you do. Uh, self-promotion, hashtag. And um, at that particular stage, no one was really doing a lot of online education. Google had one education product, but it was very much in its infancy, and it wasn't particularly great, to be honest, in its Google Analytics Academy at that stage. And they needed something a bit more engaging, a bit more innovative. Now, I'm a little bit like a runaway freight train in terms of transparent and honest. So they felt that that was an appropriate tone to strike with this new, look, building digital leadership. And the original course was orientated around change. Mm -hmm. It was for people to you know, be feel empowered in the digital space as it evolves and to kind of lead that particular change. And I'm very happy to say quite a few of the people who were on the original beta version of that particular course are now senior directors in lots of very, very large businesses, which is nice for the network. But from a personal perspective, I sat down and I started building it out and I realized, God, this is really easy. And I think that was the first time when I ever found something most easy to the point of this is not work. It's not to say that... You know, running the agency didn't have its pleasures. And even for, for a while, uh, being in law didn't have its pleasures. But I never really, 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 really got excited about going to work before. I never wanted to work all of the hours under the sun because I never really felt invigorated by the output quite so much. And I think it was more that, that slight, it's rather than a physical event, that sort of slight psychological shift was the bit that triggered, I guess, the cascade that is the rest of my career uh, to a degree. But I, I would say that is our our, our trigger point. Of
0: just really enjoying it and wanting to to keep building on it and keep working at it. So you've essentially, as you put it in your own words before this conversation, you accidentally got a corporate job. You never really intended to get one in the first place. You've essentially set off doing your own thing. And then all of a sudden you find yourself really loving kind of the work and building something at Google. So then kind of walk me through having built the online education system of Square at Google and now how you kind of moved towards the coloring in department.
1: Well, I thought to myself, actually, well, this this just wasn't moving fast enough or getting big enough for me. And I have a very, what we would call a portfolio career, a checkered past, depending on who you ask. And I thought to myself, look, I need to do something more interesting. I'm getting a little bit stayed here. I'm getting a little bit bored. And of course, that was the thing that, as I just said, impassioned me in the first place. And I didn't want to lose that. So I thought, well, you know, I could, I could marry up various different uh, pieces of of this, you know, growing space. And this probably would have been about sort of twenty fourteen ish, like twenty fourteen, that stage. And I thought to myself, well, look, I can still do this. Maybe me, I don't need to do it as an employee, though. And so I went to uh, consult instead uh, on exactly the same product. I quit on Friday. I started on Is this Monday. something
0: that they offered or is this something that you negotiated at the time?
1: This was something that was very much negotiated um, at the time. Um, I, It wasn't particularly gunned head, but it was sort of gunned head Because to be honest, I kind of telling the absolute truth about it, I had sort of hamstrung Google a little bit because uh, there were at this point then so many classes and so many webinars. There was not a faculty and there was no base of instructors to deliver them. So I was delivering in some instances, you know, up to six webinars a day, four or five days a week on multiple time zones. And the issue would be that if I quit, there was no one to replace me at that particular point in time and the program would fail. Now, that is, I guess that's the honest truth. And I much like anybody would, leveraged that to the best of my ability in order to get fired on Friday and get hired on Monday as a consultant. But so
0: then how, why did um, you move to being a consultant or what did being a consultant give you that being an employee didn't at the time?
1: It's always kind of about freedom uh, with me, a freedom to think, freedom to work, freedom of space, uh, freedom of schedule, but freedom for pretty much everything. And it adds a little bit more value to it, I think. I wanted to work with lots of different clients more directly. I wanted to build more bespoke training programs. Um, there was a little bit of ego in it as well, to be honest, because essentially I was the face of a global program and, you know, I was still quite young at this particular stage and that both looked and felt wonderful. And that, I, that I guess, encouraged me in some ways to go and be a consultant. I had sort of convinced myself that possibly I was greater than I actually was in reality. Um. So it's again, one of those, I guess, a double edged sword, I, I, di- I knew enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be sensible. So I went off into the consulting space and did quite well, to be honest, uh, at the start, at least until I really realized the lifestyle impacts of being a consultant on multiple time zones, and what that actually brings.
0: Which kind of breaking that down would be a lot of travel, a completely weird schedule.
1: A lot of travel, very, very strange schedule. I think probably I was never as well off as I was that particular year, but I was never as physically ill, physically tired, mentally drained, emotionally drained ever either. And I think we've all read blogs from, you know, management consultancy here, management consultant there who have kind of left and become travel bloggers. And they all tell the same story around, look, it's just this unlimited river of stress. And it was less so the case for me because I had a bit more control over my time. But fundamentally, when there are no parameters in which to operate, we tend to overdo it. And I certainly didn't have the wisdom to not overdo it at that point. So I was traveling. I had too many clients. I could not delegate. I was terrible at asking for help. All these things that we know to be, I guess, sort of fundamental failings in the likes of startup leaders these days. You know, often we find with startup leaders, you've got a more senior coach of sorts, um, who is chair. And some of these things are, I guess, fundamentally evidenced in the startup founders of today. And that will find, you know, uh, you know, a chairman, for instance, with a new tech company who has the wisdom to coach uh, that startup founder as to how they should manage their time and their mental health and their lifestyle, because you do have a propensity to simply run at it as hard and as fast as you possibly can. And I, I don't truly believe ninety-five percent of startups fail. I believe ninety-five percent of startup founders fail, and it's mostly because they run into a wall really, really fast, um, and it really takes the wisdom to know better, uh, which I did not have at that time. I must so, is admit. that
0: something where you've essentially run into the wall at that time?
1: Yes, right into the wall, head first.
0: So, so you're you're kind of in this position. You've you've built all this freedom. You've negotiated yourself in a position where you've you now have all this speed. Was there, besides kind of like running into the wall, was there any warning signs at that time that you noticed or was everything going great until that moment?
1: It's always really a conundrum to, to try and figure out just quite how honest to be in the scope of being a transparent and honest person. But to be honest with you, um, <laughs> what, what happened to me is I got quite physically ill and I used to describe my diet as Henry VIII. It was my Henry VIII diet. And the Henry VIII diet was basically lots of filet mignon And lots of red wine and just really lots of all the the nice things, cheese, lots of the lovely things. And I actually ended up making myself quite physically unwell at that particular point. And it it turns out one shouldn't have gout at age 26. That's a bit strange. But that in truth is what happened. It's kind of like, oh, I, I, I feel very heavy on my feet. I feel very tired. And actually then I sort of went, Oh, maybe this is this is not a this is not a great choice of lifestyle that I've kind of embarked upon. And someone had said to me, Oh, I looked a little bit, um, a little bit bloated. And actually that sent me on a journey of, as we all do, looking back at previous pictures of oneself in in former iterations and previous lives and four years ago and five years ago and so on. And as a transparent, I had gained about maybe 40 kilos, which is quite a lot of weights, about five stone or so, six stone or so. Um, and I thought to myself, ooh. I think I've made some bad health choices. At that particular point it wasn't the career necessarily that I thought was the the bad choice. I think I was just oh you just need to watch what you're eating a little bit better. But actually over time it fundamentally uh, it became clear that well actually know this is a whole this is a lifestyle package. You know, being this globe-trotting international consultant is a lifestyle package and this lifestyle package unfortunately isn't really fit for human consumption.
0: So then when you mentioned that you think actually it's 95% of startup founders fail. You currently have a, a startup and are still very successful in the work that you do. But in terms of kind of the learnings, pulling out the learnings from that very first running, running the, the media campaigns for the Olympics, as well as different approaches, what do you think some of the main changes are that you've made approaching, approaching what you do now?
1: I think, to be honest, my, my headline thing is always going to be this idea of being kind to yourself, Now, I know you've heard me say this about 500 times to anyone who will listen, but I genuinely think if you're being kind to yourself, you manage your own expectations a little bit better. And if old me years back were doing what current me is doing, probably everything would have fallen apart uh, already because to some degree, you're not just managing your time. You're not just managing your business. You're managing yourself. And, you know, we talk an awful lot about, look, hey, we need to manage down, you know, to our to our line. We need to manage up to our bosses or to our clients. And actually, a lot of the time we forget about when we have actually have to manage ourselves. And I think a lot of the things I learned at that stage have made me significantly more pragmatic about how I run my own life and how I understand my role vis-a-vis students, colleagues, clients, suppliers, partners, uh, and so on.
0: So is it something that you potentially have, you're aware of these different roles and how to kind of sense check yourself within these roles? Or are there some systems that you've put in place to kind of manage yourself?
1: I wouldn't say I have a systemized process to managing myself, no. (laughs) Well, it's it's true, you know. Everyone loves a good process. uh, But unfortunately, I am not a process-driven person, strictly speaking. Uh, see earlier point about lateral thinking. I... Uh, tend to just need um, quite a lot of flexibility and quite a lot of space. And I think that probably are, those are probably the watchwords for me. Some days I will do five times the amount of work that any normal human should be able to do, and some days I will do none. And I have to be allowed the flexibility to do that um, work at 500% one day and 0% the next day. And it may not necessarily fit what one would describe as a regular work schedule, So I don't work within the hours of nine to five and I don't support the, you know, four four hour work week approach. That's for me, not really what it's about. That's essentially, if you're trying to kind of, you know, work smarter and work very little, you're probably doing something you don't particularly like, because why wouldn't you want to do it if you genuinely liked it? So for me, it's all about flexibility and about balance and that I have to know, I have to have the ability to stop when I need to stop and start when I need to start without permission.
0: And in terms of kind of having that more, I'd say, it's getting more conventional or or more common to have different approaches to working, but it's still slightly unconventional to kind of work in these ebbs and flows when you're working with other individuals, kind of how do you communicate that or how do you find individuals to work with?
1: I'm not going to lie, I'm very very bad at prospecting. In that I'm very bad at networking and going out and asking people for help and telling them what I do. I'm fundamentally flawed at it. And I know, you know, well, at least all the books suggest, you know, you are the power of your network and the importance of having a network. What I found pretty early on, though, is if you're the person giving the speech, people want to talk to you. And instead of going to networking events, and I guess, to a degree, shaking my coin ball for donations and trying to win clients and so forth, I would have volunteered myself to speak at your event instead And something that I quite enjoy anyway, so it's not really an imposition. And then to be honest with you, I'd just go and stand in a corner. And more often than not, if I have done a good job, you'll get three or four leads out of absolutely any talk that you do at all whatsoever, and it could be about anything. But that, for me, was my way of managing, I guess, growing a network, building business, finding partners. And in a a strange way, I kind of said to the world in the form of kind of doing a lot of events and a lot of speeches. This is what I'm all about. I'm super honest. I'm super transparent. And this is what this looks like. Here's what I know. Here's how I help. Here's how you can help yourself. Um, and in doing so, I attracted the right kinds of partners uh, rather than seeking them out, if that makes sense. But I, I sort of acknowledge. look, I don't like wandering around a room full of strangers elevator pitching myself over and over and over again and talking about the weather. Not my thing. This is why I don't work in sales, everybody. And I thought, well, what can I do instead? I still need to build relationships. I still need to grow my business. I still need to build a profile. I still need to get out there and do that. And I thought to myself, well, how else could I do that in a way that wouldn't cause me a great deal of upset or a great deal of unhappiness? And quite simply, that was get to talking and start talking at bigger and 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 bigger events. And now at this particular point, every piece of work that I do now is really referral-based or existing clients. I don't um, do any business development, strictly speaking.
0: So kind of overall, right, you've always kind of been this this free agent. Were there ever points where you felt like you needed to do something more conventional or potentially were were there moments where friends or not necessarily friends, but other individuals kind of approached you about it or you you feel like you had to defend your way of living or your way of thinking about things?
1: I mean every day (laughs) but I think that's it's not really about second guessing myself I would say it's about having the wisdom to identify when you are wrong or when is the right time to change Um, and I think for me you know there may or may not be a right time to do another job or to do another thing or to take another project on. And people have tried to convince me in the past that uh, my approach to life uh, is incorrect. You know, your parents, for instance, will always be someone who will try to convince you, you must get a pension and you must invest and you must have a job job where you go to an office nine to five. And I'm kind of just like, whatever. This is this is not for me. Um, To the point that my mother told everyone uh, within her friend circle that I worked for Facebook because she couldn't quite wrap her head around what I actually did. So she decided that it would be easier if I just worked for Facebook. So for a good 10 years, I worked at Facebook, having never worked at Facebook. But it, de- it depends, really, even quite recently, uh, I made a new friend. I was recently trapped in Nepal for reasons that <laughs> may or may not be may or may not be clear uh, based on the date of this recording. And I um, met a very senior person from one of the big tech companies. And they essentially convinced me that I ought to go and make a bigger impact. Spent a good three days essentially wearing me down on this particular piece. Having talked to them about what I did and what I'm all about, they made the case that I would make a bigger impact in a big tech context rather than advising people who work um, in big tech. So there's always someone with, you know, the right answer. There's always someone with uh, the best advice. There's always a best book to read There's always um, a new thing to do. There's always a stronger approach to take. And to be honest with you, the strongest approach is to do what suits you best, right then, right there.
0: So it seems like you have a really kind of strong compass in what suits you and what you feel is best. Is that something you just kind of have developed? Is that something you actually have written down or you've identified?
1: I think it's implicit. To be honest, I'm always very wary of a number of different things. I know which types of activities make me unhappy and I know which types of activities make me happy equally. I know what sorts of things I find stimulating. I know what sorts of environments I can find a little bit tedious and and equally when, when things are tedious, of course, one doesn't do one's best work. Um, so I'm kind of, I guess, quite good at curating my world around me uh, to ensure that I'm as closest to the best possible version of myself at all times, whether that's work or personally or beyond. For instance, I will know quite quickly if I've taken on too many clients and you know, it can be just big. I just don't feel like I'm in control of this. Okay. What you've done is you've taken on too many clients. So you need to either get this work off your desk or ask for help or triage it. I'm in that way. So it's not a compass, strictly speaking, but it is a, a curated little universe. Around myself,
0: and and kind of following up from from that, in terms of of pivoting, in terms of changing, you mentioned the wisdom to know when you're kind of in the wrong or when when things need to change. Is it that feeling based of like you feel like you're no longer in control, or are there other things that kind of are not necessarily the red flags, but kind of point you in that direction that things need to change?
1: I think, to be honest, as time marches on, you know, I guess the whole the wisdom thing is, is a bit of a gift. And um, that our priorities change. Um, it used to be the case that I just wanted to be stimulated all the time. That was really kind of, that's all I was after. I just wanted to do cool stuff and run around um, and make mistakes. And and that was absolutely fine. But of course, as we get a little bit older, uh, we are able to make more informed choices about running around like a crazy person. Um, so I would say that, you know, the wisdom piece has kind of developed itself quite gradually. And whilst I'm definitely never going to be a cookie cutter, wears a blue suit, works at a big four management consultancy, despite the work probably being relatively stimulating, you know, uh, it will remain to be seen. Maybe by the time I'm 65, I'll have accrued enough wisdom to want to be a management consultant.
0: I actually kind of want to want to drill into that point of of not never wearing a blue suit, because I feel like you, you have this approach of you wear a, a uniform, not necessarily a uniform in the way that listeners might think of a uniform, but... You always,
1: But I could do that too.
0: <laughs> you always wear the exact uh, same outfit, not same outfit. You have different iterations of it, I'm assuming. But you've kind of eliminated that sense of choice in the morning.
1: I mean, it all goes back to, uh, to be honest, I was a bit of a, a difficult teenager. And I, I quite liked my school uniform because it meant that I didn't have to make any decisions. And it minimized the number of, I guess, data points in my day. Uh, and I really rather liked that. And when I left high school, I uh didn't have a uniform anymore. And that for some reason, you know, quite upset me. And the process of having to make more decisions every day around which jeans to wear, which top to wear, I thought was a bit of a waste of time. Now, no offense, fashionistas, but I, I just don't find massive amounts of value in fashion. Fashion is comfort. And for me, quite mentally comforting, i found to pretty much wear the same thing day in, day out, regardless of context. I mean, I was recently invited to a wedding and I refused to wear a suit. I I wanted to wear my black T-shirt, which I'm sure probably didn't go down particularly well. But nonetheless, I didn't force the matter. But I think that, you know, one's little routines are really important. And I think even though now probably, in essence, I could probably go a bit daring and wear something blue, you know, I don't do it automatically and there's no reason for me to. So I uh, revert to this this habit formed type and people go, oh, it's a little bit like Mark Zuckerberg or like Steve Jobs. Like It is a little bit like them, but, you know, I've been doing it long before I was aware of their existence too. So I think it's possibly just a thing that I do.
0: Well, I think that's what's really interesting is that you're, I feel like your approach in a lot of ways is is take it or leave it. It's that confidence of, if I'm going to come to your wedding, I will wear what I always wear. And it's almost this whole notion that you come across as so confident in what it is that you like and what it is that you don't, that anyone who interacts with you doesn't have a question around it. It goes back to that transparency of you always know what you're, you're getting in the kind of the full package.
1: Yeah. I mean, I suppose that makes me seem like a very uncomplex person, which I actually quite like the idea of I am uh, very much what it says on the tin. Most of the time, and the tin is a black t-shirt and black jeans.
0: But then, when you open it, it's full of it's full of surprises. If we go with with that metaphor,
1: yeah, it's 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 full of surprises. It's kind of like it's a big jar of confetti,
0: which is funny because your company is called the Coloring in Department. So it's definitely, if you ever want to check out the website, a very very colorful company. Very different approach to kind of the the traditional more corporate e-learning platforms and so kind of in that in that approach is that something you've always kind of wanted is just kind of stand out is it the way because also in writing is a very different approach as well and if you kind of want to talk about how it is that you portray yourself online and in your work that just makes you stand out automatically or is that just something that happens naturally
1: To be honest, I've reverse engineered a lot of my work to suit my personal brand rather than the other way around. You know, you're supposed to sit down and think about your brand and your messaging and your branding. And I sort of do it the other way in that, what would I say? And then I say that and go, what kind of brand would say these things? Um, So it's sort of, uh, it's a little bit about face at times um, with the way I construct brands and, and have done over a number of years. And it's quite interesting because some people read the copy that I write and they go, that's very... Stilted, it's very sharp. I like very short sentences. I quite like passive voice. You know, I do all these things that you're not supposed to do in conversion orientated copy, if you believe all of the Facebook ads around funnels. Uh, so, technically speaking, I'm a bad copywriter, you know, for all intents and purposes. But then, equally, and I, I deliberately kept all of my clippings from when I was a PR, kind of, you know, I've written the front page of the New York Times at one point on, on Boxing Day. So anytime it goes, uh, you know, oh, you can't, you know, you're not really a particularly good copywriter. You're not very good. at Maybe you're just not very good at constructing sentences or messages. I go front page, New York Times, enjoy, goodbye. And I write the way I write because I like writing like that. And then I've, I kind of build my reality around it. And people will often go, that sounds an awful lot like you. And I kind of go, that is me. I recently sent, oh, screw it. I sent you a-, a link and you were like, this sounds a bit like you. I'm like, it's because it is isn't.
0: Yeah, remember this. You sent me a link. A, a li- very famous a
1: card game. Um, card game shall not get advertised here. It's not Cards Against Humanity, but it's just as good. And Julie goes, that sounds like you. Are you doing self-promotion again? And um, without, without any prompt or cue at all whatsoever, <laughs> I feel like I might have accidentally developed a tone of voice, one that isn't necessarily endorsed by English professionals worldwide. But there we are.
0: Yeah, it's it's definitely a very unique way of saying, but it's also so refreshing. And I think one of the reasons why I remember ages ago reading your LinkedIn and just, it it stands out so much more. And it's that kind of confidence of knowing, it's almost like knowing the rules, but to then break them. That's
1: a really nice way. I actually, I get on board, I endorse uh, this particular um, perspective. Yes, I mean, even if we think about things like LinkedIn, and lately I'm doing a little bit of coaching as well, just for fun, obviously. And people you know, have these structured processes that they go through, you must include this, and it must be in this format and in this way. And I'm a bit inclined to go, yes, I know that, but wouldn't it be more interesting if, and that's sort of the yardstick I hold to it, but wouldn't it be more interesting if, so I tend to say things like, I'm really good at XYZ function, but wouldn't it be even more interesting if I was terrible at it because this would happen, haha. <laughs> and I like to write things in opposition, to some degree, and that's sort of the way my LinkedIn is written. But uh, I've had a, a corporate client of mine very recently, uh, quite senior, say to me that my LinkedIn is written like the ravings of a madman. And I sort of said, well, is it inaccurate? And he was kind of, no, not really. <laughs> and I like, thought, we're, we're all good. I mean, I'm not applying for a job at your bank. You were hiring me as a creative consultant, so we're all good. But it was just an observation that I do sometimes get. Um, some of my friends go, your LinkedIn is a mess. And some of my friends go, your LinkedIn is fascinating. Tell me more. You know, you can't win them all. You ever, not everyone's going to love you uh, at the end of the day. You've got to write for your audience. And my audience are a bit more discerning than your average blue suit.
0: <laughs> but I think that's what's what's really kind of interesting about your approach in general is, you know, there's all these quotes around, You want to be polarizing to some extent um, because then the individuals who are going to want to work with you are going to be the ones that reach out to you. But also not only that is I feel like there's now the shift to websites and companies and services forgetting that they're human and writing these really kind of official copy and official wording and a lot of the ads, whereas the ones that really break through are the ones that are that are quite human.
1: Yes. I mean, in, in, in more ways than one, I think about 10 years ago, we were all told we had to be human brands. Uh, and what that meant is that big telecoms companies took to social media and started speaking like teenagers, which of course created a number of issues. Um, many of them have evolved from it now, but now now these days we talk about being brand you know, brand transparent. There's about five years we talked about culture an awful lot, but culture you know, should be communicated and in, in how your website set up and how your message is structured and how your marketing communicates and how your ads are built. And uh, in truth, now, companies have got to a point where they are, I think, in essence, really starting to struggle with it because we're getting to the point where we are more honest or should I say the customer expectation is that we are as honest as we possibly could be. And I don't think a lot of brands are particularly comfortable with it. In some ways, our new wave of kind of digital disruptive brands you know, that are in existence the last couple of years, they are better at it because they're built around their founder's voice. Um, more often than not, that is the case. I've got a friend who owns a uh, mailing uh, flower startup, essentially, and the whole brand is her voice, given given personality in a brand form. I have another friend who um, runs an insurance company, a startup insurance company. And again, the whole brand, it's his voice and the brand is built around it. And so by default, these newer brands, they're not beating the big brands, they're just more honest by default because they are in fact a human with a brand stuck on top, not um, humanity engineered um, into a very large corporate who's been around for four hundred years.
0: With that change that's happening, and and I guess not necessarily future proofing, but kind of looking looking forward from here on out, have you identified some trends? I mean, digital kind of social media and advertising are changing rapidly or maybe not as fast as they should, but kind of moving moving forward, how do you make sure that you kind of stay up to date, not only on the technical side, but also just on the kind of thought leadership piece of what it is that you would like to pursue next?
1: Look, to be honest, Julie, I'm a little bit of a cheater um, when it comes to uh, staying appraised of the bleeding age. I, a bit like my approach to events and doing talks so that I don't have to network, I also volunteer to judge awards just so that I don't have to think and again it's identifying one's weaknesses and playing to one's strengths so I judge a lot of advertising awards pretty much on a yearly basis and I do get to sit in yachts sometimes and I do get to drink champagne and it's wonderful but sometimes it's a lot of work too and what you get when you judge awards essentially is you get a case-by-case on what is possible within a particular platform or a particular tool or within a particular approach so I'll give you an example for instance, recently, I was judging B2B influencers for an influencer award from the advertising industry. And um, it was for a very, very large pharmaceutical company It was using TikTok and Snapchat, new ad formats, uh, for the purposes of communicating the effectiveness of meningitis vaccines. So on paper, you know, not the most interesting stuff. But in going through that process, look, what have they done? What have they submitted here? They've said, look, this is what the problem is. This is how we have outlined our solution. This is the actual campaign. These were the actual outputs. Here, here's, uh, I guess, our, our outcomes um, in evidence. And I can go, that's really interesting that you've you've taken this approach around what could be quite um, a humdrum topic and used innovative platforms to deliver a message to an audience, in this case, this was Gen Z, I'm excusing the terminology, that otherwise wouldn't be interested in your products or services. And if you keep doing that, whether you're judging awards or whether you're staying appraised of them, what you do is get an endless list of business cases um, as to how the newest, coolest aspects of some of the tools and platforms can be used. Truth be told, you know some of the platforms, Google, for instance, speaking for the, for them or on their part anyway, love a good case study. So if you are building an innovative campaign with, let's say, within the display and video ecosystem at Google, they're going to want a case study you. And... You know, as a result, you, you get the case study, which is great, but everyone else also gets to see what you're up to. So it's kind of these, that's how I would stay appraised equally in a very process-driven way, sort of the antithesis of what I'm all about. I designate every month a sort of a subject matter. So this month is paid search. So I'm digging into Google Bing ads this month. Uh, next month is technical search and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And usually it means that you look back to everything kind of once a year. But it also means that you're up to a year out of date uh, at any point in time. It's not possible to be fully up to date and fully specialist in all things digital all the time. And it's a little bit like you and I have sort of talked about in the past. You know, or, you know, can you be you know a UX maestro as well as a product management guru as well as a marketing boss at the same time? And truthfully, the answer is probably no. But you can certainly borrow practices you can certainly borrow proficiencies from the various different classes uh, of professional and various different skill sets.
0: And and kind of wrapping up here, I can't believe that that time has passed so quickly. Three kind of brief questions around that. So the first being, is there a book that changed your life or shifted your mindset?
1: I mean, I'm, I'm told when I was very little, um, the only book I wanted to read was Where the Wild Things Were. <laughs> so I suspect that's Probably one of the books that changed my life, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, those of you who've read this little book. And I know I am, of course, actually offering a recommendation of a children's book here.
0: Um, I've read it in German. Yes, it's a big part of where, my childhood. You
1: know, Jack escapes, really, um, whatever he's escaping. And of course, he visits an island, and the island is full of monsters, and the monsters become his friends. And it's it's this wonderful story, kind of, of finding oneself. And I think, probably, if I'm being totally honest, I'm supposed to say something really cerebral and really, you know, get it, get it on Amazon now and it'll really enhance your business skills. But truth be told, give yourself a break and read a children's book every so often and it might change the way you think.
0: Really like that. And, and following up from that, what do you think your secrets to success is?
1: I think my secret to success, as you sort of mentioned already, I don't think I would describe myself as particularly successful. Hopefully the future brings that or makes that true. But I would say probably being honest with myself and being honest with other people, I think um, is the key. I think that people default in, in business environments, particularly to being relatively disingenuous. And they would rather tell you a lie than a helpful truth. Um, and I would rather tell you a helpful truth than a lie. And I think that's probably the thing that's stood me in good stead with persons very senior all the time, because they could they could trust what I that what I said to be true was to the best of my knowledge, true, correct, and fair. Uh, and not just what they wanted to hear, which is essentially what they were accustomed to.
0: And lastly, what advice would you have liked to hear when you kind of started to to live life differently?
1: Well, <laughs> started to live life differently. That's a that's an interesting way to think about. It. I think probably for me, I probably wanted just to hear that it was all going to be okay. Because when I started, I guess, consulting, freelancing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this is true of actually of quite a few of my friends who have sort of similar uh, career trajectories to me. An old pal of mine used to be very senior at Shopify, very, very young. And she built her first website when she was, I think she was 14. And it's it's just back then, I guess, all of the things that we're doing now, the, the people are, are, you know, oh, it's really innovative. It's really interesting. Those things were all brand new and they were all scary. They were all really, really scary. And we all learned to code on MySpace profiles and that kind of thing. And I think probably I would have liked to have heard that, look, it's actually going to be all right that you don't go and be a doctor or a lawyer or a banker or whatever it may be, that you can, in fact, go on the path less traveled and you'll probably be, you'll enjoy it more and you'll be all the better for it.
0: It's a lovely way to finish it. If people wanna find out more about you, where can they where can they find your stuff?
1: Well, my stuff is everywhere. Um, I don't want to be your Google, but of course you can go to the coloringindepartment.com, spelled US style, so pretend you're in Texas. Or you, of course, will find my wonderfully illustrative LinkedIn available on LinkedIn. Or indeed, if you've got any questions, you can reach out to me on Twitter.
0: Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. In particular, Aiden's advice that the strongest approach is to do what suits you best right there, right then has really resonated with me. If this conversation has helped you in any way or led to some insights, please share it with your friends, colleagues, and family. I would also be incredibly grateful if you could please write a review as this helps me record more episodes and makes it easier for others to find this podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Modern Day Rebels on Apple Podcasts, follow the podcast on Spotify, or listen in on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow at Modern Day Rebels on Instagram to stay up to date on each week's episode and receive some practical tips and tricks you can easily apply in your day-to-day. See you next week.